Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. How does a Christian faithfully serve God when he or she lives under a civil authority that either acts as if God does not exist or that God is subordinate to the government? What happens when civil authorities exalt themselves above the Lord and try, for example, to usurp authority in the church or the home? Is the proper biblical response for the Christian to just do as they say? Should you pay taxes if the state will use that money for evil? These are the types of questions that Dr. Sam Waldron answers in his illuminating new book, Political Revolution in the Reformed Tradition. I have included a link to the book in the podcast description. In this episode, I will use Waldron's book as a foundation and a guide to help the Christian who was called to think and act biblically while living simultaneously in the midst of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. Consequently, I think for such a time as this, Political Revolution is a book that Christians will find beneficial because it brings crucial perspective both for the church and the individual Christian as they navigate through perplexing ethical and societal questions that have recently emerged. Dr. Waldron provides comprehensive biblical answers to many perplexing questions in his book, and I will focus on the answers to five of such questions in today's episode. Although Political Revolution originally was written by Dr. Waldron as a doctorate thesis almost four decades ago, its biblical wisdom and thoughtful exegesis remain as timely as ever. Many of the points made here will be succinct summaries of Waldron's work. I will make explicit mention where I quote Dr. Waldron verbatim. In many other places, I will paraphrase. Of course, for a fuller exposition, I refer everyone back to the book. Take note that throughout this episode, I will use several terms interchangeably that all refer to governmental powers. Those terms are secular authority, civil magistrates, civil authority, and the state. Accordingly, the central point I will communicate today is that, biblically speaking, whenever we think about secular authority, we first ought never to look out, but rather to look up and consider that one— Only God is the ultimate unconditional authority who is sovereign, and two, because secular authority is not sovereign, it is both subordinate and accountable to the Lord. The central scripture talked about in political revolution is Romans 13 verses 1 to 7. This is fitting because these New Testament verses give us the clearest explanation of our obligation to secular authorities. Romans 13 verses 1 to 7 says, Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a servant of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a servant of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. 
Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Pay to all what is due to them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, respect to whom respect, honor to whom honor. This brings me to the first of five questions to be answered. Question one, where does government come from? In short, from God. Hence, because secular authority is ordered by the Lord, it means it does not come from men. Recall what Romans 13, 1-2 says. Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So, because civil authority is the ordinance, minister, and servant of God, subordination to it will be a blessing for the righteous, generally speaking. Why? Because we are being subject to the design God has appointed. The same principle would apply to children obeying their parents or church members acting in subordination to their church elders. The divine origin of civil authority tells us that, contrary to the traditional American conception of democracy, that the state is not for the people, by the people, and of the people. It is of God and by God, for there is no authority except from God. Thus, political power is not derived from the consent of the governed or by an original social contract or agreement. Such a contract results in mutual obligations, both of the governed and the governor. God's design is not mutual, but flows downward from himself to the state and then to the individual. Having a clear, biblical understanding of God's ordering of civil authority is important because if a person were to invest in the non-biblical idea that secular authority comes from men, what results is man being sovereign to the exclusion of God. With this thinking, the inevitable outcome is a person with a self-serving ideology of secular power where the self reigns supreme and any affront to personal liberty is a reason to resist authority and champion individual autonomy. What Romans tells us, however, is that whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. As I will explain later, none of this suggests that a Christian is ever called to blindly obey secular power and merely do what they say in all situations. The point here is that in all circumstances, we are called to look through and above secular power and recognize that it would not exist unless God had ordained it. Accordingly, no Christian is ever called to be an anarchist because they would have a godless view of civil government while claiming to trust. God. The rejection of the idea of a social contract thus informs us that for a citizen of any country on earth, it would be non-biblical to ultimately appeal to any form of a national charter. So for Americans, appealing to the Constitution as a foundation of our rights is bogus without recognition that the ultimate source of what is good, right, and true is God himself. This, of course, does not suggest that appealing to the Constitution is wrong. In fact, doing so is biblical when said appeal is grounded in God's truth. 
As I have written before, God created man in his own image and thus created all people with their freedom to think, speak, and act. Therefore, appealing to the First Amendment is grounded in divine truth because freedom of speech is grounded in a freedom gifted to all human beings by the Lord. Furthermore, the rejection of the idea of a social contract also dismantles the revolutionary idea that the people have a quote-unquote right to violently revolt or disengage if the government fails in its presupposed responsibilities to the people. The reality is, we live in a fallen world, and on this side of paradise, nothing is going to either be perfect or ideal. This includes whatever form of civil authority we live under. Objective right and wrong will never change, but just because the Christian may not like their government or prefer its current leaders, this does not give them the right to ever throw away what God has ordained. What God gives, only God can take away. This principle must be applied broadly because the form of the government is irrelevant to the legitimacy of the government. God ordains civil authority in general and not specific forms of that authority. For example, democracy or socialism. And the fact that in Romans 13, the Apostle Paul explicitly requires subordination to Imperial Rome, the same civil authority that crucified Christ that must be faced by those who condition subordination to any civil government on its conformity to certain standards. What has been discussed thus far certainly does not dismiss the fact that when governments degenerate and godless immorality flourishes, that the hearts of the godly are deeply troubled. On the one hand, civil authority is ordered by God, and His decorative will is that which determines whatever comes to pass. That will is the standard by which all things occur. See Romans 9.19, Acts 4.27-28, Isaiah 46.10-11, and Genesis 50.20. Yet, God's decorative will is not the ethical standard of all human conduct. Consequently, the mere existence of an evil state can fall within God's decorative will, yet that same authority still be in gross violation of His moral law. That is because God's ordering of civil authority does not just apply to individuals. It also establishes the duty of a civil authority before God. Accordingly, the common interpretation of Romans 13 is often incomplete because it fails to consider that Romans 13 speaks to those in authority as well. Hence, everyone, both the governed and the governor, is called to act in accordance with divine truth. At the end of the day, nothing and no one is exempt from answering to the Lord. Many people may flee from the idea that holy omniscience permits the rule of godless, immoral, and tyrannical regimes. Shouldn't God ordain only Christ-loving civil magistrates? Let us not forget that historically, there was a time when God ruled directly over an earthly kingdom, in the era of the theocratic kingdom of Israel. Back then, the genuine leader of the earthly government was God himself. But the age of theocracy is now over. Why? Because God's own people rejected him and inherited the consequences. It was God himself who destroyed the theocratic kingdom of Israel and transferred civil authority over to the Gentiles. Accordingly, the authority of Gentile kingdoms originated in covenantal curses. This is a crucial biblical lesson never to forget. 
And so, life under those Gentile kingdoms continues and will continue to be a curse to the people of God. Dominion of kingdoms like the Babylonians and the Assyrians would not have come about without their first being brazen rebellion of the people against Yahweh. Recognition of the transfer of authority over to the Gentiles is important because a perversion of biblical teaching would be to focus our attention on social change or to quote-unquote Christianize secular authority. This is a deceptively false hope. The true hope of the people of God is the reestablishment of the theocratic kingdom after human history ends in a new heaven and earth. This will not be the achievement of civil reformation, but of divine intervention. That answers the question, where does government come from? Governing authorities come from God. Question number two is, what is civil authority called to do? The answer to this question is very simple. Civil authority is responsible for maintaining law and order. This means primarily to restrain evil, secondarily to protect those who do good. This answer is plain from the text. Romans 13, 3-5 says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. God ordains secular authority. Because God is good, he calls that authority to wield the power of the sword, or to use force, in order to restrain evil and protect good. What becomes readily clear, then, is that secular authority is a manifestation of the common grace of God to all people. The Lord is concerned with the welfare of the unregenerate as well, so he ordains a body that will curb evil and promote good in society at large. After all, even thieves would be content with a system they can appeal to if someone steals their belongings. In the same way the law of Moses was used as a means to curb sin, so civil authority has been ordained to curb evil. Civil authority is therefore both necessary and essential, for consider what human society would be without law and order. Furthermore, what I also think is part of God's good purpose in ordaining civil authority is to provide a means to test human nature. Sin always compels the sinner to excuse himself when he is at fault. He will blame everyone and everything but himself even when he is at fault. So there needs to be an external curb so one man's transgression does not spill over onto his neighbor's front porch. And, just like the law of Moses, secular law and order does not change hearts. It does not create or produce righteousness. It only punishes a transgression after the fact. The crucial point here is that while civil authority is necessary and essential, it is not transformative. Only God changes hearts and minds. So the state restrains evil, protects good, and uses force to do so. One point I would argue, and not Waldron, is that because the state bears the power of the sword, then it may use capital punishment as an instrument of justice. 
Some may balk at this assertion and quote Jesus' command to turn the other cheek, Matthew 5.39, and to love your enemies, Matthew 5.43-44. But let us not forget that those are commands given to individuals. In Romans 13, we are talking about the corporate body that constitutes secular authority. The authority for capital punishment is also found in the Old Testament, where God established a covenant with Noah and the subsequent order after the flood. In Genesis 9-6, God says, Whoever sheds human blood by man, his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made mankind. God regards all human life as sacred. It therefore follows that in order to restrain the evil of murder, the ultimate natural punishment is permitted, execution. Note as well that by design, God's justice is also proportional. In other words, an eye for an eye. God calls for the death of a murderer. He does not, for example, call for the death of a thief or a trespasser. Consider as well that according to Romans 13, the state's operations are largely defensive as relates to individuals. That is, an individual first does good and he or she gains the approval of civil magistrates. But if an individual does wrong, they will be met with forceful restraint. The state does not take the initiative, but rather responds to the actions of individuals. Strictly speaking, then, civil authority is not called to necessarily be an agent that proactively seeks to do good works itself, but rather commends the good deeds performed by other individuals. As mentioned before, this should temper the zeal of those who want to use secular laws to make the kingdom of earth like the kingdom of heaven. I have provided an answer to the question, what is civil authority called to do? But let us also not forget what the Christian is called to do while living in the midst of secular authority. That, of course, is how Paul explains things in Romans 13, by informing the individual of their personal responsibility before moving on to that of the magistrates. Hence, biblically speaking, we are called to be model citizens. Models because our subjection to the state honors our Lord, and models because our behavior is an example both to Christians and non-believers. Generally speaking, a Christian is acting biblically when their governor, mayor, or representative can use them as an illustration and say, follow their example. In an ideal world, all Christians would live in subjection to a moral good state that would give approval for righteous behavior. So that's how civil authority is supposed to work, but often fails. Sadly, sometimes secular authority does the opposite of what it's called to do. That is, restrain good and encourage evil. How the Christian navigates a fallen reality will be addressed in the fourth question. But let us now move on to the third question. Does the Bible support or prohibit political revolution? The answer is no. The Bible explicitly does not support violent political revolution. As Waldron writes, quote, Violent political revolution is both a violation of the scriptures and a contradiction of the teaching of the historical founts of the Reformed tradition, John Calvin. End quote. In fact, Waldron argues persuasively that in Romans 13, the Apostle Paul was specifically speaking out against violent Jewish revolutionaries who wanted to overthrow the Roman regime. 
That is because at the time, Jewish nationalism, with its violent revolutionary tendencies, was a palpable influence on Roman Christians. For example, consider the story of Barabbas in Luke 23:19 and what it says about the Galileans who were slaughtered in Luke 13:1. Also consider the explicit warnings against joining with revolutionaries in Ecclesiastes 8, 2-5 and Proverbs 24, 21-22. Additionally, justly famous are Jesus' words to Peter to put his sword back in its place upon his arrest. As Jesus himself says, For all those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Matthew 26:52. Jesus also explicitly renounces the sword in John 18.36. There he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. This all begs the question that Waldron intelligently asks. If Jesus would not permit use of the sword to prevent the greatest injustice of all time, his crucifixion, then what occasion may justify violent revolt against existing authorities? Waldron equates political revolution with violence. Therefore, nonviolent civil disobedience is not regarded by Waldron as a quote-unquote revolution and is therefore biblically permissible in certain contexts. This is so because with nonviolent resistance, the person isn't trying to forcibly overthrow an authority God has ordained. Rather, they honor the authority God has ordered while peaceably refusing to participate in specific manifestations of that authority that do not align with divine truth. Moreover, if the existing laws of political entity permit revolution, it cannot properly be called revolution because agents are merely acting within the bounds of existing law. So, there is an explicit biblical prohibition against violent political revolution for the individual Christian. However, the calculus changes if you are a civil magistrate. We as individuals are not called to bear the sword to restrain evil in society at large, but the state is called to bear the sword. Hence, it is biblical for civil magistrates to violently revolt against civil authority. In fact, they would be doing the wrong thing if they did not do so. Rulers are avengers who carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, Romans 13.4. Indeed, the wrongdoer can be rulers themselves. So was violent revolution ever justified? Not by private citizens. However, violent revolution is perfectly legitimate with proper causation for those whose vocation it is to exercise authority, the civil magistrates. The only biblical justifications for use of armed force in revolution exist only when, in essence, the state revolts against the state. Now for the fourth question, what is the relationship between subordination to civil magistrates and obedience to the same authorities? Romans 13.1 gives us our marching orders on how we are to relate to civil authorities. It says, every person is to be subject to the governing authorities. To be subject to can also be translated be subordinate. Subordination comes from a Greek word, hupotasso. 
No honest Bible student can deny that hupotasso and obedience are closely related. Still, these two terms are distinct and in context, hupotasso does not properly translate to obedience. Obedience basically means you do what they say. So, children are commanded to obey their parents in the Lord. Ephesians 6.1. In Romans 13, the Apostle Paul is not commanding us to simply obey and do everything the state says. Rather, the Apostle tells us to be subordinate. So how are obedience and subordination different? Subordination is more developed than obedience and speaks to not just what one does on the outside, but also to an inward disposition that accepts being under an order or authority with calm acquiescence. The same word used in Romans 13, hupotasso, is also used in reference to the authority of parents, husbands, civil government, and of God. Likely, one of the clearest ways to distinguish between obedience and subordination is to look at their antonyms in the New Testament. The opposite of obedience is disobedience. The opposite of subordination is not disobedience. It is enmity, insubordination, or hostility. Thus, subordination is a civil virtue that has as its contrasting vice armed rebellion. To properly define subordination, Waldron quotes John Murray from the Epistle to the Romans, quote, Subjection indicates the recognition of our subordination in the whole realm of the magistrate's jurisdiction and willing subservience to their authority, end quote. The Christian who lives in subordination to civil authority recognizes that all authority comes from God. They may not like prefer, or agree with everything their civil magistrates say or do, but the subordinate Christian submits to said authority nonetheless because it has been ordered by the Lord. The subordinate person lives with a non-begrudging internal frame of mind characterized by trust in God's sovereignty. This God-honoring way of thinking on the inside begets outward behavior that is God-glorifying. Now, we have to be careful on this point and not allow purposeful subordination to bleed over into blind obedience. Biblically defined, subordination to the state never endorses sin, for in that case, it is no longer subordination. It is sin, plain and simple. It is a complete violation of the scriptures to ever make excuses for sin in order to obey earthly authority. God hates sin whether you do so on your own desire or are compelled to do so by the civil magistrate. Subordination to an authority can never compel sin. In such cases, the authority is operating outside of its assigned jurisdiction, making said compulsion invalid. As stated before, the New Testament uses the term subordination in reference to the authority of husbands over wives. So, for example, a Christian wife is neither being rebellious nor insubordinate when she refuses to sin at her husband's bidding. Yes, she may disobey him, but she is not being insubordinate. She recognizes that God is sovereign over the church, the world, her marriage, her family, and her. 
Accordingly, she is not being insubordinate because she doesn't now reject the whole realm of her husband's authority. Rather, she rightfully refuses an invitation to sin by disobeying improper use of authority. It is therefore perfectly compatible for the Christian to obey the Lord while being disobedient to earthly authorities. Waldron also quotes John Yoder in The Politics of Jesus, quote, It is not by accident that the imperative of Romans 13.1 is not literally one of obedience. The Greek language has good words to denote obedience in the sense of completely bending one's will and one's actions to the desires of another. What Paul calls for, however, is subordination. The verb is based on the same root as the ordering powers of God. Subordination is significantly different from obedience. The conscientious objector who refuses to do what the government asks him to do, yet still remains under the sovereignty of that government and or accepts the penalty it imposes, or the Christian who refuses to worship Caesar but still permits Caesar to put him to death, is being subordinate even though he is not obeying. End quote. Subordination is more mature than obedience because the former is discerning enough to understand that some things cannot be obeyed and you need not have to like things you do conform to. Subordination is also more mature than disobedience because the former is discerning enough to understand that if you reject all authority, you are in essence rejecting God. This brings us to the fifth and final question, which has already been partially answered. Does Romans 13 call us to obey the government blindly in all situations? The answer is no. In short, when Christ and compliance collide, choose Christ. No authority is absolute and unlimited except that of God. Because God is sovereign, holy, omnipotent, and good, He is the only one whom we obey in all situations. We don't have to think if doing God's will is a good idea or not because God is God. Invariably, misery follows everyone who elects not to do God's will. On earth, God has ordained multiple spheres of authority, each with its own defined jurisdiction. Hence, when speaking of human institutions, subordination to any authority implies the idea of a limited jurisdiction or sphere of authority. We've already talked about the reality that the jurisdiction of secular authority can never supplant God and thus cannot compel anyone to sin. The two other big spheres of authority that God has ordained are the family and the church. It's important to understand that according to divine design, none of the respective spheres are subject to the others per se. So, for example, the state cannot intrude upon the family, the family upon the state, or the church upon the family. Yet, all the spheres are subject to God. This universal subordination to the Lord is a crucial point not to miss, in that many read Romans 13 unilaterally as informing only the individual's responsibility to the state without also considering the state's responsibility to God. Again, as Waldron writes, quote, Not only does God's ordaining the civil authorities ground our duty, but also the duty of the civil authorities toward God. End quote. 
The simple lesson to be drawn here is that just as a Christian can violate God's will, so can civil authority. After all, civil authority is not an alien institution, but is composed of fallen human beings. The Bible teaches us sound doctrine, man creates heresies. Erastianism is one example. Erastianism is the heretical idea that the state is superior to the church in ecclesiastical matters. In other words, Erastianism would say civil authority has dominion over the church and can tell it what to do. The devil is proud of this idea. God does not teach Erastianism in the Bible. Listen to Christ's words in Luke 20.25. Then pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. What are the implications of Christ's words here? That there are some things that don't belong to Caesar. Consequently, Romans 13 certainly does not call us to obey the government blindly in all situations. In fact, the Christian may find himself in a situation where civil authority compels him to do something God has forbidden, for example, murder, or compels him not to do something that God has commanded, for example, go to church. When Christ and compliance collide, choose Christ. Hence, Conscientious disobedience is mandated by the scriptures when the Christian is called on to sin by a civil authority. And as alluded to in a prior example, such conscientious disobedience is neither insubordination nor rebellion. Why? Because if the state compels a Christian to sin, it has stepped out of its assigned sphere of authority, making such a compulsion void. An authority cannot command something it has no authority to command. Technically speaking, then, a Christian cannot disobey an order that is not a real order. He cannot be insubordinate to an authority that, in a particular avenue, has no legitimacy. Seen this way, refusal to sin on behalf of the state is not about disobedience to the state. It is about obedience to God. Waldron writes that being subordinate does not mean to, quote, obey everything they say. Obedience and subordination are often closely related, but they are quite two different things. There are times when the Christian must disobey the government, Acts 4.19.20 and 5.29. He must obey God rather than any human authority in cases where they conflict. It is also my view that the Christian may disobey the government where it exceeds its lawful jurisdiction and invades the jurisdiction of another divinely appointed human authority like the jurisdiction of the church or family. Matthew 22:21. The simple lesson, the Christian is always called to be subordinate to their respective secular power. We are not called to always obey. The state must be disobeyed when it seeks from us obedience that would require us to sin. It may be disobeyed when it seeks to impose its power outside its assigned sphere. I hope I have made matters clear in how disobedience and subordination are perfectly compatible. But it also must be mentioned that conscientious disobedience is not an exception to Romans 13. Conscientious disobedience is in fact a manifestation of the subordination of Romans 13. Why? Because for the Christian who is subordinate to civil authority, they accept the consequences of their disobedience because they are subordinate to said authority. 
This is the crucial distinctive of God-centered subordination that separates it from self-centered disobedience that rejects authority outright. To illustrate, consider how the author of Romans 13, the Apostle Paul, lived out his interpretation of the text. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas are unjustly beaten and thrown into jail for preaching the gospel. What happens? An earthquake shook the foundation of the prison so that all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. The next morning, the chief magistrates, the same ones who threw Paul and Silas in jail, they sent men to have Paul and Silas released. What was Paul's response? He did not say, I blindly submit to your will and agree with what you did. This is what the apostle says in Acts 16.37. After beating us in public without due process, men who are Romans, the chief magistrates threw us into prison and now they are releasing us secretly? No indeed. On the contrary, let them come in person and lead us out. First, even though the doors of the jail had swung open the night before, Paul and Silas did not leave the prison and remained there until the morning. Second, Paul made it crystal clear that the chief magistrates were violating the law of God and the law of Rome. They unjustly punished the pair for doing what God commanded, preaching the gospel, and also beat Roman citizens without due process. Third, Paul then called upon the civil magistrates to make amends for their error in which they acted improperly outside their sphere of authority and trying to supplant God's command. Paul then called them to act within their sphere of authority and made the request for the civil magistrates to publicly ask them to leave voluntarily as opposed to using force in secret for evil. A crucial take-home is that Paul did not fret, complain, or resist after he was unjustly imprisoned for doing what God called him to do. In fact, Acts 16.25 tells us that Paul and Silas were praying and singing to God after they were put in chains. Yes, they may have disobeyed secular leaders, but they also recognized they lived in a severe subordination to said authorities. Meaning, the chief magistrates had the authority to place Paul and Silas in jail. The pair therefore accepted the consequences of their disobedience as part of God's design. They did not obey God, disobey authorities, and then continue to reject every tenet of the magistrate's jurisdiction. Of course, this does not mean their imprisonment was right or good, just as the crucifixion was neither right nor good, speaking in terms of the use of secular power. So how can a Christian be subordinate to civil authority if they disobey a command to sin? if they accept the consequences of their disobedience. This is not the exception, but the rule of Romans 13. I think with this important clarification in mind, it will temper two extremes for the Christian who seeks to follow God's word in the midst of secular power. On the one hand, it will curb the Christian on the left who is uncritically obedient and thinks, if the government commands, I do it. That is clearly not the teaching of Romans 13. On the other hand, it will also curb the Christian on the right who is selfishly insubordinate and thinks the government is trash and I won't do anything they say. That too is clearly not the teaching of Romans 13. 
This concludes the five questions we will address today. As I hope has been clear, I highly recommend Sam Waldron's Political Revolution in the Reformed Tradition. I think it will be a tremendous help to any faithful student of the Bible who wants to think and act biblically when it comes to living amidst the tension of the two kingdoms, of God and of the world. I certainly think this book will prove to be more valuable over time when, in the United States, there are progressively more areas where Christ and compliance collide. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.